This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. You know, the ingredients are so good. I used to joke about people saying, oh, the tomatoes are so good and the peppers are so good, but they actually are. Everything is very flavorful. You know, I don't know if it's the sun, the land, the soil, the cattle, you know, the grass that feed the cattle, that make the butter. Like, it's all so good. And the way they prepare it, of course, very simply. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn what new research says about cannabis for seniors. We'll discuss foods of the Mediterranean. We'll hear that sex isn't just about the orgasm. And lastly, we'll find out how to set up a home gym on a shoestring budget. But first, a little bit of business. The Zoomer Show, Canada's largest expo for living well, is back at the Intercare Centre in Toronto on October 26th and 27th. There's hundreds of exhibitors, the latest trends in health, fitness, food, and travel. And there's live music, too. Plus, there's an expert panel on medical cannabis hosted by me, Jamie Busson, and a special appearance by hockey legend Wendell Clark. The Zoomer Show, presented by Chip Reverse Mortgage. You can visit zoomershow.ca and enter promo code TONIC to get tickets for only $10. That's zoomershow.ca, promo code T-O-N-I-C. The Zoomer Show. Live longer, live better. Philippe Lucas is the Vice President of Global Patient Research and Access at Tilray, a federally authorized medical cannabis production, research, and distribution company based in Nanaimo, BC. He's also the Vice Chair of the Cannabis Canada Council and a graduate researcher with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. His scientific research includes the therapeutic use of cannabis in the treatment of mental health conditions and addiction, and he's been invited to provide expert testimony before the Canadian House of Commons, the Canadian Senate, and the BC Supreme Court. Philippe first became involved with medical cannabis as a patient and founded the Vancouver Island Compassion Society in 1999 to serve the needs of patients who might benefit from medical use of cannabis. Philippe has received the Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for his work and research on medical cannabis and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Cannabis Canada Council. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you? I'm good. It's really nice to be here, Jamie. So you co-authored a recent study, and I, and I understand it's, it's an ongoing study, into the outcomes of medical cannabis treatment for older patients. Why is this study being undertaken? Yeah, you, uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, the study is called Medical Cannabis in Older Patients Study, and uh, the reason that we decided to study this particular group is I've been working with medical cannabis patients now for over 20 years, and what we've recently seen is this significant influx of older patients starting to use medical cannabis, and yet we know very little about the impact it's having on patients over 55 in terms of improvements in quality of life or, you know, both positive and negative impacts. So we thought that this study, which is a a multi-site study uh, taking place in a number of different provinces, would help us better understand how this particular population is using medical cannabis and, and its potential harms and benefits. So it's a study... How is this particular study being conducted? Well, it's a multi-site examination, and uh, right now it's at seven medical clinics in Ontario and British Columbia, and we have over 
300 patients recruited so far. Uh, the, the way that it works is that patients uh, would be seeing their doctor, and if their doctor agrees that medical cannabis might be a good treatment option for them, and they select Tilray as their provider of medical cannabis, uh, they can enter the study, and then we track the impact of medical cannabis on this patient population over six months. So we gather some baseline data at that first visit on uh, their demographics, uh, their uh, cannabis use, either previous cannabis use or even if they've never used it. Um, and also we're tracking the impact of cannabis on uh, pain and sleep as well as prescription drug use. And so we gather some baseline data on those measures and then we follow up at uh, two to three months and then again at six months to see how the impact of medical cannabis might have changed uh, uh, their uh, perceptions of pain, their overall quality of life, and, uh, and their sleep quality as well. And uh, one of my main uh, interests is the impact of medical cannabis on prescription drug use. And so we gather a very detailed prescription drug use inventory at all of those data points as well, because what we're seeing right now is across all age groups that when patients start using medical cannabis, it tends to reduce their use of prescription drugs. When you're collecting this data, are, are they self-reporting? Is it on a scale or is it more uh, verbal? Really good question. Um, some of the measures are filled out by patients. So we've got a quality of life questionnaire, for example, called the, the Euroquil Five Dimensions Questionnaire, which is actually filled out by the patient. Uh, but we have uh, some uh, validated instruments like the Breathe Pain Inventory and the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, which are gathered by the uh, physician. And the physician fills out a very detailed, granular uh, document on prescription drug use as well. So it's a combination of self-administered measures as well as uh, physician-administered measures. And the goal is to get as accurate a, a picture of the impact of medical cannabis on the health of these patients as possible. So how do you decide whether a patient qualifies to come into the study? Like if, for example, I went to a doctor and I was a, a Tilray patient, if I want to do it, does that mean I'm in the study or is there a, a criteria or a threshold? Well, the criteria is that they need to be English-speaking and uh, competent to be able to fill out the questionnaires uh, that, are, uh, that they'd be filling out for themselves. And uh, patients over 55 is really the demographic that we're, we're focusing on here, although I must say that the average age right now is uh, much closer to 70, and that's really the, the population that we're interested in, uh, older patient populations. And so if you're, uh, if you're uh, visiting a physician that's involved with this study, then you'd be able to participate in the study if you were to, uh, uh, to go ahead with medical cannabis use and choose Tilray as your provider. Is there a distinction between those who are either smoking or vaping the cannabis or those who are taking edibles? Is there any yeah, difference great, to that? Yeah, great question. We've got a very detailed cannabis use survey that patients fill out as part of the study so that we can track exactly what cannabis they're using in terms of whether they're using high CBD or high THC products, orally ingested products like capsules or drops or inhaled products, and, uh, and, and as well as the amount that they use and how frequently they use these products. So we get a very 3D picture about uh, their cannabis use uh, and, and to match up with the use of prescription drugs as well. Uh, what I have to share is that, you know, I, I have the chance to, to work with and, and, and speak with a lot of older patients, and they're really tired of the polypharmacy approach uh, that's being used by traditional medicine right now uh, to deal with uh, the conditions around aging, where you get one prescription from your physician to deal with, uh, you know, pain or something else, and then you get 
three more prescriptions to deal with the side effects of the first prescription. And so I think that's why more and more patients uh, uh, over 55 are looking at cannabis and particularly CBD as a potential alternative to that polypharmacy approach. And was that one of the, the goals of this study was to sort of see if, if that was what senior Canadians are looking for? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is a, a fast-rising demographic in the medical cannabis population, but it's quite different than, you know, uh, the, the patterns of use that we see with younger populations. So we've got a study that's a, a large-scale longitudinal study that's been taking place over the last three years called the Tilray Observational Patient Study, and that's a study that took place at 21 medical centers and clinics over five provinces. And we see very different patterns of use of patients over 55, say, compared to patients under 25. So, for example, under 25, patients tend to have an equal preference for THC or CBD products, um, whereas patients over 55 overwhelmingly prefer high CBD products. In fact, about 80% prefer high CBD over high THC. And in terms of method of use, when you're under 25, about 75% of patients are inhaling cannabis products, whereas when you get to uh, above 55, about 75% are using oral ingestion. So what we really see in this older population are patients who are orally ingesting high CBD products as a particular preference and really, when I talk to this older patient population, the real interest in medical cannabis is really focused on CBD. And I think one of the reasons is it's non-psychoactive, and therefore uh, that patient population doesn't need to worry about being impaired or having dizziness or disorientation or anything that might cause a fall or, or any other uh, concerns around impairment. Are they still dealing with the stigma of cannabis? Do you think that's why they prefer CBD? Yeah, I think that that's part of it as well. But I think that as cannabis has moved away from inhalation and towards other methods of ingestion like capsules and oral ingestion, it starts to feel more like a traditional medicine. Uh, you know, I think smoking and vaporization, it still feels a, a lot different than most of the medicines that you find in your medicine cabinet. And so I think that that has actually opened up a space for older patients to consider the medical use of cannabis. And I think that will increase even more once we have access through pharmacies, which unfortunately still is not the case here in Canada. The way that patients access medical cannabis in Canada is they sign up with a licensed producer like Tilray, and then we ship it directly to patients' uh, door. And that can be very convenient, actually, for, for older patients, but it still feels different than picking it up at the pharmacy, um, which I think will make really increase the normalization around medical cannabis when that comes about here in Canada. Well, also, I think there's a number of older Canadians who are perhaps living in assisted care facilities or other facilities where, you know, the door isn't literally their door. It's the door to the facility. And then there's a whole other sort of protocol that's required to administer and use the cannabis products. Yeah, and it's really encouraging to note that um, over the last few years, we've been contacted by a lot of long-term care facilities, and many of them have put in place now rules and regulations that allow for the use of medical cannabis products. Either they put in vaporization spaces or rooms where patients can vaporize if they choose that method of ingestion, but they've also put in procedures that allow the employees of these facilities to administer cannabis products in the same way that they would uh, traditional pharmaceutical drugs. So that is becoming more accessible even in long-term care facilities. With respect to the ongoing study, I know you have some goals in mind when you, when you started the study. Are you finding so far that the information and data that's coming in is reflecting what you assumed? Are there any surprises in the research? Well, what we're 
we're finding so far is that uh, we definitely have this interest in, uh, in older populations and using medical cannabis and introducing medical cannabis in their course of care. What we are seeing is very few adverse events, and we are tracking adverse events, and so that's really good news. And, uh, and I think part of that is because there is such a preference for, for high CBD products that tend not to be associated with adverse events. Now, CBD is known to be and has been shown to be through uh, uh, academic studies to be a, a powerful anti-inflammatory uh, drug and also a mild uh, analgesic for the treatment of chronic pain. So it's particularly well-suited to conditions like arthritis and, uh, and other conditions associated with aging, including autoimmune conditions. And so I think that that combination of older patients introducing CBD in their course of care seems to be having uh, right now uh, positive outcomes without some of the, uh, the potential negative outcomes that you might expect from traditional pharmaceuticals or even from higher THC products. Are you differentiating between the pure CBD products or the ones that have an element of THC, even if it's trace? Because I understand that some CBD for some people may work better if there's a little THC involved as well. Yeah, all of Tilray's current product lineups, uh, even our very high CBD products, have a small amount of THC. And so, for example, we have the highest CBD products available in Canada right now. It's, it's a product called 2 by 100 and it's 2 milligrams of THC per uh, milliliter dropper at about 100 milligrams of CBD, which allows patients to take very small amounts. But you're absolutely right. There is some evidence, uh, both from an academic perspective, but also um, just what we hear from, uh, from patient populations, that having a small amount of THC may be able to help potentiate the impacts of CBD in terms of uh, analgesic effects and also the anti-inflammatory effects. So right now, um, we definitely see a, a patient preference for the higher CBD products, but a lot of these products do contain small amounts of THC. And I also I want to mention that it's not unusual for patient populations who are using these orally ingested products to use higher CBD products during the day so they don't have to worry about impairment and these are very discreet products so it's not like you've got uh, smoke or vapors that anyone can smell or detect right. but then they often use a higher THC products at night to help with insomnia and overnight pain uh, and, and while they're sleeping they don't need to worry about impairment so that's a very uh, common pattern of use that we see in this population. So I guess what's important about this study uh, the ongoing one is that you know the vast majority of research that's been done uh, historically in my understanding is it's anecdotal and there is really not a great deal of actual clinical studies that have gone on with cannabis because it's so recently legalized. Uh, is that part of the goal here is to, is to get less anecdotal and more data-driven information? Yeah, absolutely. Our, our end goals with this uh, research and with all of Tilray's research is to publish it in high-level academic journals and to be able to pre present this data uh, at conferences and events as well. Um, it's so in order to better uh, inform patient options, but also uh, to better inform physicians in terms of their options, um, in terms of their, their current uh, therapeutic options, just adding another tool in their tool belt to what physicians might consider. Uh, I also want to mention, by the way, that one of the things that is encouraging in the last few years, and I've been working on this, as you mentioned in the intro, for over 20 years now, is that there is starting to get cost coverage available for patients who are using medical cannabis. And so I really want to make sure that any patients who are listening this, uh, to this uh, uh, broadcast, that they, if they have
have private insurance, that they contact their insurer in order to make sure that uh, if there's an opportunity for coverage, that they get the cost covered. And that can be through the healthcare savings account or HSA. That's part of a lot of uh, uh, modern uh, um, uh, private insurance plans. Or it can be uh, through their uh, traditional private insurance health plan. And at Tilray, we put in place what we call access navigators. We have a 24-7 helpline. And if patients contact Tilray, um, we can help them uh, negotiate the and have these discussions and advocate for themselves with their private insurers as well because cost is always an obstacle to access when it comes to medical cannabis and we want to make sure that if cost can be covered that they are thank you so much for coming on the show today uh, i appreciate all that new information about cannabis it's absolutely a pleasure and i would encourage anyone who's uh, listening to this to uh, attend uh, the uh, CARP conference that's taking place, the Zoomer conference taking place in Toronto, not this weekend, but the weekend uh, after, uh, to get more information. There's going to be a whole cannabis information uh, center there and also some opportunities to hear more about medical cannabis and the impact on older patients uh, at the main stage. So thank you so much. It's been uh, great talking to you this morning, Jamie. Thanks so much. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss Mediterranean cooking. And if you listen on to the end of the show, you'll find out how to win a cookbook on The Tonic. It's new. It's powerful. It's the next generation. It's Purica Recovery 3.0, a new formulation for inflammation relief and healing that brings together the strength of the original Purica Recovery with the rapid relief of Purica Curcumin 30% BDMC. It's a powerful antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and immunity optimizer all in one. It works by repairing the damage and relieving the stress that's at the root cause of pain. It's Purica Recovery 3.0, and it's coming soon from Purica. For more information, visit Purica.com. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural Liquid Greens. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Welcome back. In addition to being a lawyer, my next guest has been writing for Tonic Magazine for over five years. Since 2015, she's written the very popular cookbook review column, My Wife, Naomi. Hi, sweetheart. Hi. Today, we're, we're traveling to a part of the world where lots of people like the food and it's all sort of healthy and good for you and delicious. And I'm talking about the foods of the Mediterranean, Yum. which yes. is which is like a vast topic. But we're going to visit some ports of call today because there's some cookbooks you want to tell everybody about, right? That's right. We're going on a little cruise. Yes. Where are we starting our cruise? Italy. Italy. Yeah. Why do you think people like the food of the Mediterranean so much? Well, as you said, it's delicious. Why is it delicious? You know, the ingredients are so good. You know, everything used to joke about people saying, oh, the tomatoes are so good and the 
the peppers are so good, but they actually are. You know, they they are everything is very flavorful. You know, I don't know if it's the sun, the you know, the land, the the soil, the cattle, you know, the grass that feed the cattle that make the butter. Like it's all so good, and the way they prepare it, of course, very simply. And and the focus, I think, on on seasonal and regional, like mm-hmm. you, like when you travel to these countries, uh, and we've been to a few, they tend to focus on the ingredients that are local. They don't mess around. Uh, so you know exactly what you're getting, but they know how to deal with those ingredients. Yes, they've been cooking this way and pretty much only this way for a long time, and they're good at it. You know, everything is fresh, everything is local. Like they, you know, they, their local is different from our local, and um, you know, they they know what to do. So okay, so we're starting with Italy. Where are we going to Italy? The south. The south of Italy. Yes, the south of Italy. There's a recent cookbook that came out called Food of the Italian South by an author named Katie Parla. And she is an American who now lives in Rome, I believe. She's a guide and a blogger. And she wrote a cookbook called Tasting Rome, but now she's moved south. And she's focusing on lost and classic and disappearing dishes in a number of regions in southern Italy. Now, I thought it was funny because we were talking about local, you know, here we might say local is Ontario versus right. BC versus, you know, what they have in the Atlantic province. But their equivalent is like Toronto versus Guelph versus London right. or Hamilton. You know, like the, these regions are not very far away from each other, but they consider them to be very different. And, and so the book, there's a lot of discussion about the differences between the regions and what they what they focus on. Yeah, you could be. We're, we're talking. Some of these regions are only a few miles apart. Yeah, but their food traditions are completely different. Uh, and there's a difference between whether there's mountains or whether they're landlocked or whether you know they're coastal as well. You, you, you do get variations. Sure. So she talks about in Campania. There's produce, really great produce. You know, rich farmland. There's coast. There's the coastal regions where they have seafood. There's in Puglia, they grow wheat. In Calabria, seafood, and they like their sweets. And I'm not sure I can pronounce this. Basilicata, potatoes, legumes, meat, and milk. And then Molise, grains, lamb, goat, rabbit. You know, like this pretty specific. And I think if you were to travel from one to the other, you might see similar dishes, but they'd be prepared slightly differently. And there might be, you know, different emphasis. So it it is interesting. I think when we were last in Italy, we actually made our way down to an area that I didn't, in my head, I didn't think of it as the south of Italy, but I, according to this book, it really is. It is. We went to Ischia, which is an island um, in the region of Campania. It's close to the bigger island of Capri. Right. Capri. Off the coast of... Uh, Naples. Naples, yes. Mm-hmm. And I really haven't had such good food as as we've had there. Like, it yeah. was just everything that we talked about, you know, in the last couple of minutes, you know, was highlighted there in terms of the produce, the jam. They had all this local jam that I'm so sorry we didn't buy yes. and bring home. Um, the butter, the cheese, they had honey, the fish, and the seafood. Like, everything was just so good. I was surprised. I thought it might possibly be touristy. It wasn't. It was just. It was really good. Yeah. You think you know? Even though the Italians are into cooking very regionally, there is a wide variety to what they eat. And certainly, if you get to these restaurants in some of the smaller towns, you really get a feel for the for the broad diet that they have. It may not be something you would see in a menu here, uh, or even think of. Like so, for example, on the island of Ischia, 
one of their uh, featured items was rabbit because they have a huge rabbit population that grows wild there. So, but you wouldn't think of that on an Italian island, but they absolutely do eat it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so w- what about some of the recipes from that cookbook? What, what, what did you make and what did you enjoy and, and what do you think people would like to make from it? We made a number of things, um, some things that I haven't made yet. There's a number of soups, um, hearty soups. I got this over the summer and it wasn't really so much the, that kind of weather, but I'm planning yeah. to make this now. A lot of grains, as I said, there's some of the regions really grow wheat and other grains, so different grains like farro and um, wheat berries and other uh, buckwheat, even some grains I hadn't heard of, and a lot of legumes, so really hearty soups. Some have meat, some don't. Uh, great for winter. Sometimes they have potatoes too, so a number of different recipes like that. A lot of ingredients that you might expect, like olives, capers, anchovies, cheese, tomatoes, eggplants. So you can have bread stuff, peppers, bread meatballs, or meatballs that are not made of meat but made of bread, stuffed eggplants, all with all those ingredients that I just listed, the, you know, all strong flavors mm-hmm. um, counting on good ingredients. So what we did make, I made polenta with wild greens, which I don't immediately seemed interesting to me. I don't love things that are bitter, and I was worried that this would be this focus on kale or other wild greens would be bitter, but it wasn't because you blanch the greens to basically make a polenta. It's almost like a flat cornbread. Break it up and then toss it with sautéed greens, and it was so good. I made it twice, very successful. Spicy, peppery, flavorful. Totally vegetarian, so no meat, no cheese, no nothing. Really good. I also made a zucchini soup uh, with also simple onion water, zucchini cooked, and then um, eggs, it was sort of a stracciatella soup, eggs, Parmesan cheese, and mint. And it was simple and so good. And it was filling. The texture was filling. Yeah, was much uh, denser than, than I thought it would be when you told me you were going to make the soup. Yeah, it was. And then we made uh, pasta, cavatelli with tomato and wild mint pesto. Had mint and basil. We weren't sure how the mint was going to go. Yeah, but, but we used mint from our garden. Yeah, it was great. It was great. It was great. A lot of different pasta recipes. Fusilli with pork ragu, orchetti with burrata, tomatoes and almond pesto. There's seafood, fish dishes, you know, potatoes. Like so, so because of all the different types of food that's eaten, they, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of foods in the cookbook. So um, fun to eat, to cook from. I would definitely recommend it. Well, we could talk about Italian food all day. We could. But let's, let's move on. What is our next port of call? So just to briefly mention Greece, because that seems to be the place to go, and yeah. I really do want to go there. Okay. <laughs> but Duly noted. I, I, uh, it appears we'll be going to Greece. <laughs> okay. I saw a cookbook called Orexi, so O-R-E-X-I, Orexi, by an author called Theo Michaels, and it's focused on Cyprus and but Cyprus and also Greek food it's everything you would think when you think of whoa what would it be like to eat in Greece with olive oil and feta cheese and tomatoes and watermelon and yogurt and dips and grilled meats um, but not kitschy like everything looks healthy fresh delicious probably would be better if you ate in Greece but it you know that's something to check out if you're a fan of that cuisine I really like that book but moving on I want to spend more time now, as we move along the Mediterranean uh, to Israel. Okay. So where what are we talking about with Israel? What cookbook? A new cookbook called Sababa by Adina Sussman. I know Sababa means awesome. And this is also focused on to produce fresh, fresh, sunny flavors is the way she describes it. 
The author, Adina Sussman, is from California, really, which could be described as the Mediterranean of the United States in terms yep. of the what grows there. Uh, she's now lives in uh, Tel Aviv, and she lives close to the Carmel Market, and she has written this cookbook, which is all about home cooking um, with the Middle East flavors. Now, we were recently uh, fortunate enough to go to uh, to meet her and to go to a brunch at Fat Pasha restaurant where they were cooking from the cookbook. Right. So we didn't have to cook from the cookbook. No, we haven't cooked from it, but we, we, got, a, we got a sense of the result of the food, and the food was really delicious. Yeah, it was really great. And, uh, I, you know, I'm going to try these recipes at home. But there was a pita, homemade pita, and salad team with a bunch of little salads. There was falafel, baba ganoush, which is like a smoky eggplant spread, shredded spicy carrots, madbucha, which is a pepper and tomato dip. So a lot of fresh little salads. We tried these great flatbreads. Yeah, the flatbreads, I think, were the highlight of yeah. the meal. Would you agree with me? One was a tar, which is a spice blend, and the other with tomatoes and garlic. Her hummus... Fresh hummus was delicious. The hummus was on point. It was. Uh, I have to say, I, I don't know what she did to make it unique because it's a pretty simple dip. But uh, I have to say hers was the best I've tasted in a long time. It was very, very smooth. Maybe that was it. Yeah, and it was flavorful. Did roast mushrooms uh, on tahini, homemade jams. Oh, the lemon cauliflower. Lemon cauliflower on labna, which is a very thick yogurt. And there was um, pine nuts and pomegranate seeds also uh, sprinkled on top. So really flavorful dish like that was one yeah and it's it's one of those trendy dishes where you know everybody in the city is making roasted cauliflower but you know this really this really was a good version it was and then we had gravlax so the cured salmon and homemade bread and capers and then there was peach cooking for dessert so can't go wrong with that right and and these are all recipes in the book even though yes Exactly. So I haven't cooked them. I'm planning to. We just got the book, but I really want to talk about it because it was the food was so good and it looks so good. Fantastic. Well, I think we've we're coming to the end of our cruise around the Mediterranean. Thank you so <laughs> much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. You'll be back next month, and we're going to discuss holiday gifts for your favorite home cooks. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on the tonic. Now that summer has given way to the 9 to 5 grind, Tabasco and Egg Farmers of Ontario have created delicious breakfast recipes for 7 Days of Eggs, showing Canadians how to shake up their workweek breakfasts. With 7 different sauces, it's easy to spice up a scramble or heighten the flavor of a ho-hum sandwich for different eggs every day of the week. To get you started, Tabasco and Egg Farmers of Ontario are giving away 5 prizes of $1,000 in groceries. Visit tabascosauce.ca for contest details and to find quick, delicious, and nutritious breakfast recipes, including some that are perfect for meal prepping for even the busiest of mornings. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000-square-foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. 
My next guest, Carlisle Jansen, is the founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality shop and workshop center in Toronto. And she's the producer of the Toronto International Porn Festival. And she's the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. You can watch her TEDx Toronto talks and educational videos at carlislejansen.com. And you can reach out to her at carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show. Hello again. So a few years ago, yep. we're, we're digging back a few years. Yeah. You wrote a great article for Tonic about how the orgasm may or may not be the beginning and end of all things when we're having sex. It's a part of it, but, yeah. it's, but it's not all of it, right? It's not all of it. It's not all of it. And some of us can get there more easily than others. And, you know, sometimes what happens is when you can't get there, then that becomes a real distraction, right? We become very goal-oriented and we become very focused on it. And then we lose all the fun. You're talking to a man who, who gets competitive in a yoga studio. <laughs> So, so, you know, the thought of not being able to achieve the big O or help somebody yeah. along with the big O or participate in that. Yeah, I, I think for a lot of people, it feels like the, the goal and the raison d'etre, etc. I mean, know? it's certainly it's nice. I like to call it the icing on the cake. That's a better way of thinking. Right. About it. And, you know, if you're just going for the orgasm, then then that's all just icing and then you have no cake. And that's kind of like too in too much and not really and not I love, really satisfying. I love cake. Yeah, exactly. So you want the cake too. But when you only focus on the orgasm, then you have challenges. And some people just can't get there, right? So well, There's a number of us who don't have orgasms, right? Yeah. Or, or it's a real challenge for them. Yeah. And usually it's because people want to have them and they can't. And whether it is that you have some kind of erectile challenges, that you have a hard time getting an erection, you have a hard time ejaculating, or you have a vulva and a vagina and it's just, it's hard for you to get there. And that sometimes you need some power and sometimes uh, often what happens is we either need a little bit of extra technique or sometimes the mind gets in the way. Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, how shall I put this? I don't want to extrapolate to other people, but I would think the mental element is a huge part of it. It's a huge part of it. You know, like if you're under stress, if if you're thinking about other things, if you're not feeling good about yourself, you know, or you're, you're, you know, you're perhaps uh, sparring with your partner on all sure. about other things like it, it's, yeah. it's it's not necessarily yeah. going to work for you right yeah and sometimes people are lying there and they're thinking like how do I say go a little to the left you know right. or how do I say that I really don't like the tongue in the ear or it's not working for me or yeah I'm still mad about the argument we had earlier on or I'm doing this to check it off the to-do list or I really think you're not attracted to me but you're just having sex with me because I'm here like all kinds of distractions that go through our minds lots of women talk about how they make grocery lists while they're having sex okay we need carrots we need bread <laughs> I'm a list maker, but I don't make lists during sex. I, lo- I love my lists. I, I, yeah. I admit it. Lists but, are great. But, but, I've never, great. but I've never gone there. Yeah. Um, orgasms are still important, whether we have them or not. I mean, it's okay if you don't, but it's still... it's. It's an important part of, of who we are and what we do, right? Well, I would I would say that pleasure is important. Yeah, okay. And sometimes the ultimate pleasure is the orgasm. But when we have that as a goal and not everyone can get there, it sort of feels like, oh, I'm missing out. There's something wrong with me. And then you get a lot of shame. Right. You get a lot of frustration. You feel inadequate. You feel broken. There's something wrong with me. So when we place the emphasis on the orgasm, then we're kind of stuck. So Well, once you set up a goal, yeah. you're also defining what failure is, right? right. Sure. Right. So yeah. like so like if you're in that paradigm where yeah. where if you're doing it, you succeed. And if you don't, you don't. Right. Well, then it's if either you or if you don't. Yeah, it's binary. Right. Like, yeah. So that if you don't, well, then that's 
all of a sudden you've created a problem which may not exist, right? Right. Yeah. And I'm sure there's lots of people who would say, yeah, I've had sex and I've had orgasms, but it was really not very interesting. You know, it wasn't yeah. very pleasurable. So if we go for a goal of being pleasure, can I feel more pleasure? Can I enjoy more pleasure? Can we expand our repertoire? Um, can we connect more? Orgasm might be a part of it right? Um, and can be a part of it, but that the goal is pleasure, which is kind of bigger, right, right. than that. And I think um, more satisfying than just an orgasm. Well, let's, okay, so then let's change let's change the discussion yeah. a bit to focusing on how do we get more pleasure? What are the sorts of things that we can do so that we're not talking about orgasm necessarily? Yeah. Yeah, if it yeah, happened, yeah. it wouldn't be a bad thing. Right, yeah. But, but to get more pleasure, like, what can we do? So, um, I mean, there's certainly, we can introduce toys, we can introduce different kinds of sex, we can introduce, you know, different kinds of fun things like bondage or, or different kinds of pleasure, role-playing, you know, fantasies. So those those can certainly enhance what we're doing. Um, but often what a lot of people find is when they're more present, <laughs> yeah. they feel more pleasure. Well, we've talked we're, about mind. You're talking about yeah, mindfulness, yeah, right? Yeah, when we're connected and we feel each other. And, and so... So when we can calm down our brains and think about, you know, what am I feeling and who's this person in front of me rather than, am I going to get there? What if it doesn't happen? Do you find me attractive? You know, um, how do I say what I want differently? When we do that, then we're not actually enjoying what's going on. We're in our heads. What would you say to somebody who struggles sort of being in the moment? How would you help them get in the moment? In yeah. The moment, right? So <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. And um, sort of mindfulness is the, is the catch-all. Um, sometimes it's helpful to think about how when we're having sex, we're supposed to be in rest and digest mode, right? Where we're relaxing and we're enjoying, we're in the moment. As soon as we get anxious, what if I don't orgasm? What if I lose my erection? What if I ejaculate too quickly? What if I I don't What if I don't fall asleep after and I have another restless night? Or all the things that we think about that we need to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So then we're in fight or flight. So what we want to do is focus on the sensation because fight or flight is our ancient brain saying like there's a bear chasing me. This is not the right time to have an erection. This is not the right time to have an orgasm. So all the blood flows out of our rectile tissue and goes to the main organs to run away from the bear. So we want to try and calm down and be present in the moment. And I like to use the example of a truffle, right? If you were about to eat the last chocolate truffle that you're ever going to have in your entire life, how are you going to savor that? How are you going to eat that? And really focusing on all of the sensations and in the moment and as much as you can taste, as much as you can feel. And that's what you want to do when you're having sex. How much can I feel? How much do I notice of my partner in front of me if I'm having sex with someone? How much can I feel in my body? And just so that your mind is so full of all of that sensations, there's no room in there to worry about is it going to happen? Am I doing it right? What if it doesn't happen? What are your thoughts on people perhaps having a drink or two or maybe some mm-hmm. recreational cannabis to sort of stave off those feelings of anxiety and, and get into the mood? Are you okay with that? Well, I mean, I think it's a ma- it's not about whether I am, it's whether the person is. And, and I think that I, I often say like, you know, try it once or twice. Right? right. See if it makes a difference. You know, a glass of wine or two, not eight. Right. Um, well, if you're having problems with erectile dysfunction, having eight help. glasses of wine is not going to help the situation. I, yeah. That much I know. Yeah. And some people experiment with just CBD. Some people yeah. also take THC. Some people find the CBD really helps to bring down the anxiety. Some people find the THC enhances the pleasure. I guess my bottom line is if you try it once or twice and it helps, what that means probably is that you 
have to deal with your anxiety, <laughs> right. right? So I don't want to say like then, you know, have a glass of wine or take some cannabis every time you have sex. Maybe there are other things you can do. Maybe you want to meditate before you have sex or go for a jog right. or connect with your partner, have a shower with your partner or a bath or read some poetry. What's going to help you get into the zone so that you're not using that as your go-to? Because, I mean, most of us, lots of us, when we were teenagers in our early 20s, that was our go-to, right? right. Like we often use some kind of substance before we had sex and that's not necessarily the best pattern to get into and doesn't keep us connected. There's a famous scene in uh, Annie Hall where mm. uh, they're both, Annie Hall and Woody Allen are both mm-hmm. in analysis and one is complaining that, you know, the other needs to have right. cannabis as part of the sexual experience yeah. and and I think it was the Annie Hall character. She says, well, what do you care? Like, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm there for you. And, yeah. and he says, no, no, you're only, you're only there in the body. You're not right. there in the spirit and the mind because yeah. you're high and you're, you're not yeah. really, yeah. you're not in the moment, right? right. Which, so I guess it's kind of, well, can you do it and stay in the moment? Maybe right. that's a better thing, right? right. But, but if sure. you're not, then maybe you're shortchanging your, your, your partner, right? Well, and yourself, quite frankly. I mean, I mean, you're having your own experience, but you could potentially have um, a deeper experience if you were actually more present, right? If you're trying to get yourself out of where you're at, then that's not necessarily helpful. And certainly, um, you know, there's a some studies that have looked at what makes great sex and it's all about risk and about being genuine and being yourself and being authentic, yeah. right? Rather than how many orgasms you have or, you know, how high the pleasure is, you know, that's a part of it. But, um, but it's about the connection, whether it's with yourself or with somebody else that really dictates the satisfaction. And I, I guess with all these things that we're talking about, mm-hmm. it, you know, working on ways to connect, mm-hmm. communication is, is key, right? Like sort of finding out what, what's okay with your partner, where they want to go and if they're comfortable, for example, you trying CBD before or with them, you know, all those things, right? Yeah. And, you know, sex is something that is really, really hard for us to communicate about. I mean, most of us, I find, don't really learn good communication skills anyways. And then around sex, it just makes it harder. So having that kind of a discussion is challenging. But sometimes I say, you know, email your partner, tell them, you know, what's going on so you don't feel like they're right in front of you um, and you're like sitting there waiting for their judgment. You know, sometimes people want to do it in therapy, you know, whatever. But the, the more that you can communicate what you like and what you want, the better the sex you're going to be and the better the relationship you're going to have. Fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's always a pleasure. Next month, uh, you're going to be back to discuss strategies for couples to resolve conflict, right? Yes. We've got to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of The Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic magazine, and vice versa. This is the Tonic. 
on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Our next guest, Kathleen Trotter, is a fitness expert, nutritionist, life coach, monthly guest on BT Montreal and Rogers Ottawa, and author of the books Finding Your Fit and the new Your Fittest Future Self. Welcome back to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, I with you. yeah, I love chatting with you too. And and so, a lot of people who listen to the tonic are active and they go to gyms. But some people don't necessarily get the gym vibe, but they still want to be fit and they want to be fit in their own homes. So, what do you think about that? What do you think the benefit it is of of sort of exercising at home and having a home gym? Well, the main benefit is consistency. You know, for workouts to be consistent, you need to sort of enjoy them or at least not absolutely hate them. And if you hate the gym, you're never going to go. And you have to be able to do it on a regular basis. So when it's in in your own home, you know, you don't have to spend half an hour to get to the gym. You don't have to get half an hour back. But I think before we even get into the benefits of home gym, I want to make the point that it's not necessarily an either or. I'm a really big believer in just the idea that something is always better than nothing. And movement of some sort has to be a non-negotiable. So if you love to get to the gym, great. But on those weeks that you're crazy busy at work or with family, maybe that's when you do a home gym. So you could be the person who always wants to work out at home. I call you the home bunny personality. In my first book, I talk about the four fitness personalities, the home bunny, the gym bunny, the competitive bunny, and the sort of busy multitasker who sort of fits exercise into their, their busy life. And you can be one of those, but you could also be a mixture. So you could say, well, on my weeks that I have a little bit extra time, I'm going to go to the gym. But on the weeks that I can't get to the gym, this is a way for me to make fitness a non-negotiable because if you don't do it regularly, you're not going to do it. You're not going to make your goals, right? And it's really frustrating to have a goal and then constantly fall on and off the wagon and then never reach it. And then you're just sort of like, screw it. I might as well do nothing. So it's a negative spiral. Whereas if you're consistent, you'll get you'll at least work towards your goals. I agree. And I, and I think it's got to be a lifestyle decision. You have to say to yourself, the decision to be fit and to be active is part of what you're doing going forward. It isn't something necessarily that you're doing to fulfill a goal. It's just something you do. That's the way I see yeah, it. Yeah. And you can have short term goals along the longer term yes. goal, which is just to be healthy. Right. And I like, I love my mom's phrase when I was a kid, she always used to say to me, Kathleen, life is about finding solutions, not excuses. And I think that with fitness, that's really true. It's so easy to find all the excuses, right? It's like, well, I'm too busy. I don't have time. You know, I need to be with my family. But with all that, you can then find a solution, which could be the home gym, right? It's like, oh, I have to be with my family. Well, what about we work out in the backyard and then I go inside and do some, you know, squats, lunges, planks, or, you know, I can't get to the gym. It's okay. I can get a recumbent bike and I can bike at home. You know, there's always a solution if you take the time to troubleshoot and figure it out. Okay, so let's let's talk about if somebody were contemplating putting together a home gym, let's talk about the physical space and just sort of like where should you put it and how much space would you need and from a structural perspective, you know, what would you recommend? So it really depends on what you need and what you want. And I think that it's about sort of knowing and doing you, meaning I have clients who their their home gym is literally a closet where they keep a couple pieces of equipment um, and then they pull it out and they work out in their living room. But I also have clients who've turned, you know, an entire room in their basement into a full-fledged, like, quote-unquote, gym with big machines. And so it depends on your budget. It depends on your time that you want to spend in it. You know, do you want to be mainly, like, walking 
running and being active outside and you're only going to do your kind of calisthenic stuff on the inside? Um, or do you want to be able to, in the winter months when you can't get outside to do a run, do you want to be able to do a workout inside and therefore need a treadmill? Um, so that might be better on, you know, downstairs in your basement where you're not going to be making so much noise for the rest of your family. You know, I, I think the thing that I always tell my clients is that you really just have to be able to get two things out of your workout. You need to be able to get some type of cardiovascular workout and then some type of strength workout. And then of course the flexibility, but that needs less space. So for that, you sort of need a mat or carpet or something like that. So as long as you can troubleshoot how to get those two things, your cardiovascular workout, which would be like your running, your biking, your dancing, anything that works your heart. And then as well as a strength exercise, um, then it doesn't really matter how you do it. If you have an entire room or if you have a closet and some people don't like the gym to be visible, you know, they want to be able to stick the foam roller and the weights in a closet. So when people come over, they, you know, it's not visible. Whereas, you know, for me, I have my Peloton in my living room so everybody can see it. And I don't care. I love it. It, it sort of, it's a good cue for me. I see the bike and I'm like, oh yeah, I got to get on that bike. Whereas if it's tucked in a closet, it's easier for me to sort of forget about it. So it really depends on you and you have to know your personality and you have to know what you want to get out of the workout. And if you're going to be using it as your primary workout always, or if it's just going to be when you can't get to the gym, which is a very different, different thing. Yeah, I agree with you. I would say if you're going to build a more permanent style gym, if you're going to devote a room to it, I would say you might want to consider what type of flooring you're going to have. Like, do you, if you're going to be sweating a lot, do you really want carpet there? For example, totally, absolutely. I completely the, agree. Like the gym, gym for if the people yeah, who are trying to replace, right, right. Instead of going to good life, they're going to work out at home. That's a whole nother thing than the person who's saying, I want a space to work out when I can't get to good life. Or I want a space that I can do some things while my kids are watching, you know, a Netflix movie. I want to be with them in the room or if they're coloring or whatever, I want to be with them in the room, but I don't want um, like a full fledged gym. So it, it, you know, it very much depends on how you want to use it. And also, you know, I often suggest to people taking sort of a staggered approach to their home gym, meaning invest in a couple pieces of equipment that you're going to be happy that you have no matter what, that are not that expensive. And then when you decide if you like it, then you can buy more versus, you know, you spending a whole bunch of money on, you know, thousand dollars, thousands of dollars of equipment and then being like, you know what, I actually don't like working at home. Cause that is a thing. Like there are some people who really like leaving their physical space to work out, like separating it from their home. So I wouldn't want somebody to be listening to this and be like, Oh, Kathleen says I need to work out at home. And then they buy thousands of dollars of equipment and they're like, Oh, actually I don't like it at home. Like, you know, I like my home for eating with my family and being with my family and you know, whatever, but I want to be able to leave and have some space. And there are definitely people who want to have an appointment somewhere else, like with a friend at a gym, or they want to just go and, and leave their life kind of behind. So it's, you know, you sort of have to do you, be you. I was talking with a client this morning. And so I have a gym in my home. Like I actually see my clients out of my studio. It's sort of a separate space. There's a wall, but like a wall and a door between my home and my studio, but it is a space. And she was saying to me, Kathleen, why do you go and pay to do Pilates classes twice a week somewhere else? She's like, you have a reformer literally in your home. And I said, well, you know, twice a week, I like to get out of my space. Like I like to walk somewhere. I like to meet a girlfriend and we like to do, you know, we do that. And then we go for a coffee. So 
like, yes, could I do it at home for sure? But I would rather not, but I'm happy to use my Peloton at home. Right. So again, it's this going back to knowing you and being you. Uh, and as long as you're making the health and wellness, uh, lifestyle, a priority and non-negotiable, and you're doing something then I don't really care how you're doing it. Well, what sort of equipment when you were saying to a staggered approach and buying some, some basic equipment, do you have any recommendations where people should start? I love a skipping rope. It's 10 bucks. It's inexpensive. You can use it anywhere, even when you're traveling. Great for cardiovascular health. Really important if you have osteoporosis because it builds uh, bone density. Bands are great. They're $10. You can do everything, biceps, triceps. I don't know, Jamie, do you have something that you love, an inexpensive piece that you use? I find I had a piece of equipment that I don't love using, and that's the adjustable weight, free weight. Where like you, yeah, they can be a little bit awkward. They're not well balanced, but I find that I've been using free weights quite a bit for doing curls and various other exercises. Like you can add it into a squat or a lunge; it doesn't have to be super heavy, but it makes a yeah. difference uh, to the, to those exercises. Totally. And you can get inexpensive sets at somewhere like Canadian Tire, you know, five, eights and tens for the free weights. So they're not that expensive. Yep. Um, the adjustable weights are wonderful for space, but they're, they can be hard to hold. I, my clients often, I have a set of those and I do get complaints about those for sure. Um, but if you want to sort of stick them into a closet, they can be better for space than dumbbells. Yep. But I also really like something like a mini trampoline for cardiovascular health. It's super fun. Put on music, dance around. It's great if you have arthritis and you don't want a lot of impact. Gliders can be really wonderful. Again, inexpensive can make something like a squat or a lunge, you know, a little bit more fun because variety is the spice of life, right? I'm sure like you work out and you know, if you do the same thing over and over again, you're going to get really bored. So, you know, some, a little bit of variety of stability ball or a foam roller, both of those pieces are about $30 and they they can replace a weighted bench, which is a little bit more, uh, a weight bench is more expensive. How does it replace a weighted bench? Like we have foam rollers, but I've never thought to use it that way. Yeah, I love it. So if actually just lie lengthwise on it and you take some free weights and you can do, you know, alternating flies on there or bench press and you get the stability aspect of being on the foam roller. Same thing with a stability ball. You could put your head and shoulders on it and then be up in a bridge. So it actually makes it a little bit harder than the bench. And again, you know, for space, again, you put it in the closet and especially the foam roller. If you sit a lot at work, lying on it with your arms open is amazing for posture. So um, I think if you were only going to buy one piece of equipment, the foam roller, um, because it gives you posture, it gives you core and you can do strength training work on it would be a good piece for your staggered approach. That's fantastic advice. And, and you know, when you, all those things that you listed, the, the bands, the gliders, a few free weights, uh, stability ball and a, and a foam roller, you could probably outfit a pretty decent gym for around a hundred dollars. I would think 120. Absolutely. And then, you know, you, you decide you like working out at home, then you can buy a couple of more expensive pieces, go into the two, $300. You can start to go into the recumbent bikes that can be a great value because a lot of people buy them and then sell them on something like on yeah. eBay. So you can get a piece. And then if you want to go even more expensive, you got the treadmills, you got the ellipticals, you got the cable machine. So you can really, the, you know, the world is your fit is oyster depending on your budget and your space fantastic thank you so much for coming on the show we'll hear back from you next month right absolutely thank you for listening to the tonic you can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes and links at thetonic.ca to find out more about the show you can follow us on the tonic talk show on instagram or facebook 
For great articles by Naomi Bussin and Carlisle Jansen, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. For your chance to win a Sababa cookbook, send an email to jamie at tonictoronto.com. In 50 words or less, tell me why you like listening to The Tonic and answer this skill-testing question. Who is my guest who discussed the Mediterranean cookbooks today? We'll announce the winner next week. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll also discuss mental training for healing your body, three great overlooked grains, and mindful communications. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.